Father, I'm so honored to know that that's not just words on a screen or theology that we repeat, but that the God of the universe, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, invites us into his presence, and you come and dwell in ours. And so thank you. Thank you for the truths that we believe and that we stand on, that guide and direct every aspect of our lives, that gives us wisdom and discernment and direction in every issue we face and every decision we have to make. And so we lay this day at your feet. Thank you for the opportunity to join with thousands around the globe in every tribe and language and tongue and give you praise and to lay our offerings at your feet. Thank you for your word that allows us the richness of seeing you face to face and hearing your voice still after all of these years speak loud and clear to us. So may you do that today in really wonderful and profound ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Great job. Good morning. So do you like it? Isn't that pretty? I had to do something to upstage the jail cell. So I thought, what could I do? And so I spent the last three weeks putting little pieces together and forming that tile so that it would look like that this morning. And then I stood in the arms of Jesus and hung the cross up there so that I wouldn't fall. You're not buying any of this, are you? <laughs> Dave did a phenomenal job. He came to me one day and said, I've got an idea, and I love people that have ideas. And then when you see them become reality, you're going, wow, that's really amazing. So when you look at it on a little piece of paper like this, and all of a sudden you see it on the Sunday morning like that, you're just saying, wow, God, that's really good. So, Dave, thank you for your creative skills and the ability of a team. The ability of a team of people to put that together. You had to see it to believe it, but it's really sharp. A lot going on here this morning. I don't want you to miss out on anything. Ten minutes after I'm done, this family experience, kindergarten to fifth grade. It's an opportunity for you to join together with your children and find out what God's teaching them, what you'll be able to share throughout this given month. So take an opportunity to leave as soon as you do this morning. Head back that way to the Kid Stuff Theater and join some other family members to have a lot of fun this morning. Family night is Tuesday night. Families gather together. We play games, eat together. Today's the last day to sign up for that, so make sure you come and are a part of it. If you're thinking about getting married, engaged, don't you want to know that you're engaged to the right person? Don't you want to know what that takes or what that looks like? Now you can say, well, we're in love. That's fine. You want that. But you want more than that. And so we're going to spend some time, two and a half hours, two hours, talking about what it takes to have a great marriage and a great relationship. Do it every year. It's an opportunity for me to get together with all the couples that are really serious in a relationship or engaged or pretty serious about thinking about getting married but haven't crossed that line yet. Love to have you here on that night, March 19th, 6 to 8 p.m. Got to sign up for that. And then Dave Pendleton. We've never had a ventriloquist here that I know of. Family Life Network called us a couple of months ago and said, we'd love to bring Dave Pendleton down to your area. And when I watched the promo, that was funny enough, but when I watched the promo, to know that Chuck Swindoll and David Jeremiah recommended him, I'm going, I'm in. So we'd love to have you here that night. It will be a lot of fun and very different from anything you've had before. Love to have you come back and be a part of that. A lot of other information in your bulletin. Make sure you read it very carefully so you won't miss out on a thing. Now, yesterday on Phone Tree, if you listened, I said I was going to ask you a question, and I may ask some of you to answer that question this morning. If you had an opportunity to spend some time with someone in the past, not just a meal, but an opportunity to spend a day or two or a week or two with someone in the past, 
either biblically, historically, or relationally, who would it be? Now, the typical Sunday school answer is what? Jesus. That's the answer to everything. And we're going to talk about that. But if you had a chance to spend some time with someone, extended period of time, not just a moment or two, but to really spend some time with someone, either biblically, what character would it be? Historically, who would you want to spend time with? Or maybe relationally, family-wise, who would you want that to be? Duke, you already had your hand up. Who would you choose relationally? Anybody comes to your mind? Who first came to your mind? My grandfather. Grandfather. All right? That was the exact first answer that came up in the first service. I went home and I told my wife what I was going to open with, and I said, who would it be? She said, my granddad. Three of her four grandparents were gone before she was born. She said, I'd love to know what he was like. Rich in history, a lot of great stories about him, but I'd love to meet him. And in each service, when I asked different people, who would it be? It was the first answer was a grandparent of some kind. I'd love to talk to my grandma. I knew her. Came from the old country to America in the early 1900s, and when you're a kid growing up, you don't think to have those conversations. You just kind of see her over there, and she'll talk every once in a while. I wish I'd have learned Croatian. But I would have loved to have had that conversation with her. What's it like to have left the old country, is what she called it? What was it like to have some guy that you knew for a while who said, I'm going to go find another place, and it's not just a, another city, it's a whole other country, Matter of fact, it is across the ocean, sends back for her to come and join him. And then she sits in Staten Island in a ferry for three days, and as she said on a, numerous occasions before she died, I waited three days for the old man, and I never knew when he was going to come. <laughs> what was that like? And what was it like to start a new venture? I mean, how do you get off the boat in New York City and decide you're going to end up in Avella, Pennsylvania, or Washington, Pennsylvania? Why there of all places? Wouldn't you love to have conversations with family members who are gone to find out what it was like for them? And sadly enough, we who are young, or those of us when we're young, we forget to have those conversations. We kind of wish we did now, but we never did then. My encouragement to you would be to have them now. I remember Seth one day at Penn Christian had to interview us about our past and about our family experiences. And I thought, what a great thing to have children do. To find out about some of those issues and some of those things in the past. Biblically. Di, who would it be? Who would you love to spend time with biblically? Job, David, and Paul. Fascinating answers. What was it like? To go through some of the experiences of David. Job, how did you, after losing everything, say, well, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'll continue to praise. I don't think I could have done that, Job. How'd you do it? Paul. Love to spend time with Paul. I've always wanted to spend time with Joshua. I've always in my ministry life have had the opportunity to follow somebody who was great kind of take over and so you're young you're in charge you're ready to go you can't wait to find out what it's all about you see God ahead you know what your obstacles are but man you're charging through and want to get to the other side and now all of a sudden when I wrote that down the other day I thought well I'm no longer Joshua I'd like to talk to Moses of all things Moses and of all things in my life Moses I'm on my 40th year and you led the children of Israel for 40 years what was it like when you got to the end of that journey? What's it like to know at some point you're going to 
pass all of that on to someone else and pass the mantle into their hands. How did you feel? How hard was it? What did you learn? What was it like standing in the presence of Almighty God? No one, no one had ever had that experience up to this point. He got to see God face to face. Abraham, you were called a friend of God. I got a lot of friends, a lot of good friends, a lot that I've known for a long period of time, but you were known as a friend of God? What was that like? Well, this morning we are going to spend time with a Sunday school answer, Jesus. And for the next eight weeks, we're going to really unpack various aspects of his life. Now, we'll never be able to cover all of the aspects of his life. It was unbelievably rich. My encouragement every single time I come toward this Easter series, right up to Easter and beyond, I say to everybody in the audience, at some point during this journey, go through Matthew, go through Mark, go through Luke, go through John. Go through all four of them. Pick one of them. You're going to find me touching on certain points here and there, but I'll never be able to cover it all in eight weeks and There's so much to tell in this story. The most extraordinary individual that ever set foot on this planet. I have no idea why you and I were born on this side of the cross. None of us do. For all of human history up to that point, they waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and they never came. And then all of a sudden, Galatians 4.4 said at that moment in time, that perfect moment in time, God opened up heaven and sent his son. And showed us what God was like. He said on numerous occasions, what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So forever we wanted to know what what does God look like? I mean, what does God really look like? God. What does he look like? What does he sound like? How does he respond to life? How would he respond to today? And so when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I hear Jesus say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I say, oh, now I know what God looks like. I know how he'd react to life. And I want to make sure that I do everything I possibly can to see as much about him as I could. And after all of these years of preaching about Jesus, I still find myself excited about the opportunity I have to preach about Jesus for the next number of weeks. Because once you see him, really see him, it will change everything. I'm pretty sure it's Max Licato who tells the story about Bob Eden. 50 years blind. 50 years walking through darkness, not able to see. And then all of a sudden, through an incredible operation of an unbelievably skilled surgeon, he had the opportunity to see. Now, for those of us who see, we can't even fathom what it's like. No matter how many times you say to somebody, you know how you feel, unless you've been there, you don't. And you can say the words, and you may mean them, but you really don't. Can you imagine what it was like to spend half a century not seeing anything, and then all of a sudden, to be able to see? He said it was unbelievable. Colors, I had no idea what colors looked like. Now all of a sudden I see colors everywhere. Sunrises, sunsets. I can see, and I'm still overwhelmed by them. What was it like to see the first one? The shape of the moon, the stars at night. He said it was unreal. Unless you never had vision, or never really weren't able to see, do you fully understand what it's like to finally see? There's a lot of us who have vision, don't see very well. You ever live someplace and then somebody comes to visit and you've lived there all your life and then they'll say to you, hey, 
I found out that such and such was right near you guys. Did you ever go see it? No? Oh, it's awesome. We were there last week. We saw it yesterday. We went last month, and it was amazing. You've lived there all your life. You never took the opportunity to go see it. If you look at a garden and see the flowers all out in front of you, but never really take the time to really look at the majesty of one particular flower. You can live all your life with a woman and not necessarily take the opportunity to really see her soul. So for those of us who have seen all of our lives, we may not fully experience or understand quite what it's like to miss that incredible opportunity. But in this context, you don't want to miss what you're going to see over these weeks together. A person can be all the goodness calls them to be and never really see the author of life. They can be honest and moral and even religious, but not necessarily see him. They may see what others see in him. They may hear a lot about him, but until they really see him for themselves, they really fully won't understand who he is and what he offers. Peter said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For a moment in time, three years, longer than that, of course, but three specific years, heaven peeled back the curtain and we got the opportunity to see what God was like. And we never want to miss that chance. Heaven opened its door and this no run of the mill of Messiah came and we saw his majesty. And something happens to the person that really sees him. One glimpse of who he really is and you'll want to see more. And if you don't want to see more or read more about him, maybe, just maybe, you've not really seen him. Because once you really see him, really see him, and really experience him, you'll always want more. You'll always want more. Isaiah 53 in his prophecy about himself said, there was nothing really spectacular to look at. It was nothing about him that anyone thought, that's a really handsome individual. And when I read that for the very first time and then found that they were casting me as Jesus in the Easter productions a number of years ago, I thought, wonder what I should think about that. Nothing really spectacular stood out about him. But while he was here on earth, people flocked to him. Everywhere he went, whatever he did, it seemed like he attracted people like a magnet. John chapter 12 was the heading verse for this morning as crowds gathered everywhere he went. I mean, when you perform the miraculous and the lame walk and the blind see, and you feed a few thousand people with some loaves and fishes, you're going to draw a crowd. And everywhere he went, people came. And there's this fascinating phrase in John chapter 12, verse 19, where the Pharisees say to one another, look how the whole world has gone after him. This morning I want to give you six reasons in your sermon notes why people came to him. Number one is this. He was a man of action, not theory. He was a man of action. He didn't just talk about things, he did them. He had the ability to reduce concepts to life action. He wasn't one just told you that he cared. He showed you how he cared. There are a number of sections of Scripture this morning that I'll allude to, and I'd love you to take time this week to go back and share the stories. The one I have there in this context is Matthew 17. It's a story of the transfiguration of Jesus. Took three guys with him up on a mountain to pray, Peter, James, and John. When I first began in ministry, I 
remember a number of leaders over me and superintendents saying, now you remember, when you go into church, you can't have any really good close friends. I thought, well, nobody told me that in seminary. No, you got to make sure that everybody sees you at one level and you don't really expose yourself, share yourself, let them see the whole who you are kind of a thing. And so you got to keep a distance. And so I did that for the first year or so. And then I thought, that's just crazy advice. I began to watch the life of Jesus and hundreds followed him everywhere he went. And he had 70 that were probably closely associated with him in some context or the other because he sent them out as disciples and then there were the 12 who were really close and then there were the big three, Peter, James, and John and the one who was Jesus' favorite child who was what? John, who said, I'm his favorite. Dad likes me best. I'm the one who Jesus loves. And I thought, well, if Jesus could narrow that down to this huge following of people to 70 to 12 to 3 and to 1, then I could as well. And on a numerous occasions, Jesus would take these three into some incredible experiences. And one day they're on a, on a mountain just praying. We're going to talk about his prayer life in a few weeks. But on a mountain praying, probably worshiping at some point or the other. I don't know if there's any music going on at all. Or they took a CD player up there with him. And all of a sudden the angels show up and things begin to change in a dramatic form. I've often wondered, what does it really look like? What did it really look like? When Jesus was transformed right in front of them. I mean, it was an angel singing. It's an incredible experience. And then all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses show up. I've often wondered, how did they even recognize who they were? I mean, it's not like there was pictures and they looked through the iPad to say, what did Moses really look like? And they looked at that and all of a sudden, that's Moses. But Moses and Elijah shows up and it's an unbelievable experience. Peter, the one who always had something to say, said, Jesus, this is amazing. I love the worship here. I love the angels. I love the band. I love the screen. I love everything about it. Let's just stay here. Let's just stay here for a while. Matter of fact, I'll go out and build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And as soon as he said that, I realized that Peter had never been in a building program at all in his life if he's going to build three. And Jesus said, no. I don't want you to stay. I love what we're doing. I love what you're seeing. I love what's taking place here. But I, I, I don't want you to just stay in this moment. I want you to go out and do and express and share what you've seen and what you've learned from me. He doesn't want those moments of meaningful worship to be not transferred into some time or some kind of action. He wanted to make sure they fully understood whatever God was doing here, whatever God does on a Sunday morning, whatever God does in those moments are sometimes electric and incredible. Where Jesus could show up, take me to heaven, and I'd be thrilled right in the middle of worship. But he doesn't. And he doesn't even say, why don't you stay another hour? Sing a little more. Have 12 more songs. No, what he says is, go out and make a difference. I'm glad you were here. I'm glad you were here for this, Jesus would have said to those three guys. But what I want you to do is take what you've sensed in me, what you've seen in me, what you're learning from me, and take it out there everywhere you go. You see, Jesus could have talked to us about resisting temptation, but in Matthew 4, Luke 4, write them down your notes. He showed us how. He could have told us, enjoy life. But instead, he showed us by attending parties and weddings. Could have talked about the value of children, but he instead allowed them to come everywhere he went. Always transforming philosophy into action. Could have talked about the pain of losing a friend, but instead he showed us when he wept at Lazarus' tomb. 
could have talked about the blessings of humility, but instead he picked up a towel and in John 13 washed his disciples' feet. He could have talked about his ability to transform life, but instead he took Mary Magdalene, a prostitute, one that everybody else would have rejected, most did, and transformed her life in such a way that she became the very first person that announced his resurrection. Of all the people God could have chosen, of all the people Jesus could have chosen to announce his resurrection, God chose her. Jesus constantly, continually pulled back the curtain of heaven and showed us what God was really, really like. Not in theology, not in theory, but in activity and action. And in a world that promises so much and produces so little, he steps right into the picture of humanity and not only promises, but he delivers. Second reason is he was a friend to everyone. No class distinction. Luke 15 is just one of many examples all the way through Scripture where he's being criticized by the religious elite for who he hung around with. I mean, look at him in Luke 15, hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus finally had to remind them, that's who I came for. Not for the righteous who think they've got it made, not for those who think they're okay as they are, but for those who recognize without me they have no hope. That's who I came for. And when you look at that, you realize that's who we need to minister to as well. It seemed like Jesus had an open arm for everybody and every need, regardless of where they came from or what they'd done in their life. And when you come to Jesus, you knew one thing. You knew it for certain that you were going to be accepted. And the world may reject you. The world may look down at you. The world may say you don't fit, you don't belong, you don't have enough, you don't work enough, you don't do enough. Jesus said, I'll take you. I welcome you into my home, my family, my world, my life. If Jesus is our example and I want to be Christ-like, then I can't look down on other people because of their social status, their education, their clothes, or their disability. That's the kind of church we want to be where everyone feels welcome. And when we stop reaching every segment of society, we stop being a New Testament church. Third reason is he had something to say. He had something to say. Matthew 7, it's just, you know, they were amazed at his teaching. I mean, his very first sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. My first sermon was awful. <laughs> and it was a long time ago. But it was awful. And I had numerous people telling me that. There was an elder that I loved and adored. Every week there was an older guy who had already retired who saw some promise in this young buck. And he would come to my office with a cup of McDonald's coffee and just encouraged me and loved me and then I got the opportunity as a young buck out of college and seminary to preach my first sermon and he came to me and said that was awful. <laughs> that was 20 points. 20 points then. Who's going to remember 20 points? Now I've got it down to six. <laughs> but I thought of that when I was doing the first sermon this morning. Years later, my mentor, Mel Nicholson, who was the pastor that we started under, Rock Dilliman and I both started under him, and Mel died. Ruth called us up and said, you know, Mel really wanted you and Rock to do his funeral. I was unbelievably honored. We went and did his funeral. And Dutch came up to me and he said, I still remember your first sermon. It was awful. <laughs> look, at, look at Jesus' very first sermon. It's unbelievable. If you could just take everything you learn out of the Sermon on the Mount, someone has said, it would, everything else in all of humanity and every library in the sun would pale in comparison to everything you see in just those few chapters. 
he has something to say. Well beyond E.F. Hutton, when he talks, everyone listens because he talked about matters of significance, about life and death and eternity, about truth. He did it on a practical level in ways that everyone could understand, which is why number four is so critical. He identified with a common individual. He was a communicator, not an intellectual. A communicator takes things that are complicated and makes them simple. An intellectual takes things that are simple and makes them complicated. Right? Been around intellectuals? You never really fully understand what it is they just said. I think intellectuals also write the directions to everything you ever have to put together. Don't you think? I mean, I get this thing and it looks simple. I see the picture on a box and I see 27 pages in English and Spanish and Japanese and Chinese. And I'm going, I have no idea even where to start. I have paid individuals to come to my house and put things together because I have no idea how to do it. And I feel like I'm reasonably intelligent. But I look at that and I think, how could they make something that looks so simple, so complicated? When I had grandchildren, my wife said, that swing set stinks. Tear it out. I've already ordered a new one. It comes, shows up at our house. Looked at the directions. And on a Sunday morning, I had the audacity on a Sunday morning to use that as an illustration as to how complicated those things are. And I said out loud, I'll pay 50 bucks to anybody who can come to my house and put that swing set together. It cost me $100 because two guys showed up that I had already promised 50 <laughs> And they did. And I paid them. Jesus wanted the common individual to understand who he was. Even in the temptation, the Hebrews writer said, there is nothing, nothing that he faced that you wouldn't experience as well. There is no temptation that you and I experience that's not common to Jesus. And because of that, the Hebrews writer could say, look, you can tell him anything and everything. He knows. He understands. He gets it. He knows. And when I'm too embarrassed to tell anybody about what I just thought, I find it so easy, strange as it sounds, to tell Jesus. Because he said, you can tell me anything. I've been in enough funeral lines to know that sometimes we say things and share things and tell them every story we've ever heard and every verse we've ever known in the line and and they're not really ready for all of that, but so often I hear, I know how you feel, and, and, and sometimes they do, but most of the time I want to say to them, you really don't. So it's just easier not to say it, just to say, hey, I love you, I'm praying for you. Because most of the time you really don't know exactly how they feel at that moment. But they really do want to know that you love them, and you're praying for them, and you encourage them. What I love about Jesus is he really does know how I feel about everything. So there's nothing to keep you back from telling him. Number five is this compassion. I mean, you can't read scripture without seeing this unbelievable compassion for people. And not just in verbiage. I'm sorry. Man, that's tough. Sorry about that. I mean, he really felt it. I mean, really felt the pain. And one of the things that sets a lot of people that I've been around in life is the ones who when I tell them what I'm feeling or frustrations or when you tell them, you do know they really do hurt for you. They rejoice when you rejoice and they weep when you weep and they really do it well. One thing that you'll see all the way through scripture is Jesus really cared. You follow him through the pages of the gospel, you will beyond a shadow of a doubt know Jesus cared. You'll find him allowing children to come gather around him when adults wanted to push him away. You'll find him talking to a very confused religious leader late at night when he probably should be going to bed and getting some rest. 
He was willing to risk his very reputation on people that everyone else would have looked down on. And he didn't do it because he was supposed to. He did it because that's who he was. We're coming to the Easter season, and one of the things we always talk about is how the soldiers put him down and nail him to the cross. We talk about how Pilate condemned him. We talk about our sin to put him on the cross and the nails that kept him there. And as important as all of those things are, the thing that really kept him on the cross was love. It was our sin, it was the soldiers, it was the nails, but the thing that kept him there, not put him there, the thing that kept him there was love. He cared. What I love about him is he still does about every issue you face. And number six, he offers what no one else can. He offers what no one else could offer. That's the uniqueness of Jesus. One of the reasons we preach missions and say to us as we did last Sunday morning, take the gospel of Christ everywhere you go, all the way around the world. Because we offer what government can't offer, what the Peace Corps can't offer, what social services can't offer. What we offer is Jesus. There are wonderful things they offer. But the one thing that we offer that no one else can offer is Christ. That's what makes the difference in everything. John chapter 6 for a moment. I've given you the introduction. Everything I've just said is the introduction. Now the message. You ready? John chapter 6. Near the end of his ministry at one particular point or the end of a day and he's preaching to the crowd and he begins to look out on the crowd and he realizes he's calling them to fully understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ and what it's going to cost. And kind of like what we see every once in a while on a Sunday morning, people start to leave before I said you're dismissed. One of the reasons we have a sermon note where there's a last blank to fill in so that you won't leave before I say go ahead and go. And every once in a while, I'll see people get up, and, and I haven't done yet, but they kind of checked out and took off. And I've, I've often wondered what it was like for Jesus to look out in this huge crowd of humanity, knowing that he had been there for every need they had, and fed them, and loved them, and healed them, and prayed over them, and then all of a sudden to see them begin to one or two or three or ten at a time walk away. One of my favorite, out of all of my ministry life, favorite sections of Scripture is this one. When he looks down at Peter... And said, are you leaving too? And Peter, who always seemed to say the wrong thing, got it right. When he said, Jesus, where else can we go? Where else could we go? You have the answers to life. You have the answer to life itself. Where else can we go? You're the only one to meet my deepest needs. You're the only one to really understand me. You not only offer me friendship and care and compassion and tenderness, you offer me life and eternal life. You give me what no one else on this planet ever could. Where else would we go? You have the answer to life. Anything John Orberg writes, I'm reading. One that he wrote years ago, everyone's normal till you get to know him. And I thought, boy, that is true. <laughs> he writes a story of a little boy named John Gilbert. John had muscular dystrophy. And John knew that it was going to take its toll on his body, but he really experienced it. He said it's going to begin to take your muscle tone and a lot of things away from you, and you'll eventually die. And so year after year, there were more things that happened to John, and at one point, he couldn't walk well, and another point, he couldn't walk straight, and then he started to lose his voice. Kids made fun of him, as sadly, sometimes as kids do. He had some highlights in his life. He was invited by the governor of California to come to the governor's office and, and, and really be the one that would be the 
spokesperson, if possible, for people with muscular dystrophy and had a private meeting with the governor and him and his mom. At some point, there was a huge auction and NFL players from everywhere came. And they saw John and they realized and understood the circumstance and they brought over their huge Super Bowl rings and they let John hold them, probably couldn't, and noticed and recognized that that Super Bowl ring probably took three or four of his fingers to put it on and hold it steady. And then the auction began and there was one thing that John had his eye on. It was a basketball signed by every member of the Sacramento Kings, a professional basketball team. To a lot of people in the room, it really wasn't that valuable, but to him it was. That's the one thing he wanted more than anything else. And So the bidding began, and as soon as the number shouted out, John did his best to raise his hand. His mom pulled it down because they knew they couldn't pay for it, and the bidding went on and on and on and kept going up and up and up, and it really wasn't as valuable as the numbers were. And then all of a sudden, somebody in the room shouted out a number that no one else could ever match, and they knew the auction was over. I'm sure you know by now where the story is going. He went up to the front, took that basketball, and instead of going back to his seat, handed it to John, whose hands would never dribble it, but would cherish it for the rest of his life, as short as it may be. You and I have been given the most valuable gift of all, bought and paid for by God himself in Jesus No matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, no matter what, we can never, ever repay that. But it was freely offered to us and paid for by the most unbelievable price of all and his son dying on the cross so that you and I could have life. Who wouldn't want that gift? A God who loves me, who understands me, who has compassion, who makes me feel like I'm accepted when the whole rest of the world rejects me. A God who really lets me know he knows how I feel. He understands what I'm going through. He loves me just for who I am. Wants to take me further, but he takes me as I am. And then I realize he has everything. He offers me life, and that's what I want. Peter got it right. Lord, where else would we go? You have the answer to life. I hope you'll stay with us in these next eight weeks together because it's going to be fun. Next week, one of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture, an invitation, a personal invitation by Jesus himself. Sharing communion, we're going to see some tough sides of Jesus. Talk about his prayer life out of all the things the disciples wanted to know. That's the one that still stands out to me. Show us how. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'm offering the greatest gift of all. The ultimate price has been paid so that you and I can have life and love and understanding and grace and forgiveness. The list is endless. I hope you know it, you've received it, you live it, and then you walk out of this door and give it away to those who are desperately looking for what you've found out. You don't want to keep this to yourself. Like those three disciples on the top of the mountain realized, you got to give this away. It's too good to keep. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us beyond bounds, beyond boundaries, regardless of our past, regardless of our issues. You're unbelievable that you love us that much that you gave your all so that we could have life and have it forever. Peter nailed it. Where else would we go? You have the answers to life. 
thank you for what you revealed to us out of this just small few times in your word this morning. Over these weeks together, reveal so much more because once we see you, really see and experience you, we really will never be the same again. And we'll definitely want to pass it on. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, you can go. Family experience, kindergarten to fifth grade. If I could pray for you, talk to you about Jesus, please come this way. Love to do that. Have a great day.